Repentance is a tricky thing. Uh, it's not often preached because it makes people uncomfortable. Um, but I'm going to dive right in, hallelujah, because the end of repentance is restoration. The end of repentance is, as Kip shared, um, being perfected for all time. That's, that's what we have to look forward to. So this morning, we're going to be doing uh, two chapters, 13 and 14. And the reason why I'm doing them together is because 13 is all bad news. And 14 is glorious news. And they actually pair really well together because they're meant to be read together. Um, so in the last chapter, yet last week, we saw God's heart poured out to complacent Judah. He called out their sin and warned them of the consequences of remaining complacent towards God. And while spiritual complacency in our walk is deadly, it often leads further into outright hostility and rejection of God. Amen? Um, so in this sermon, we'll be looking um, at the next part. Uh, they're comparable. So the first part, he talked to Judah, and he says, I have an issue. I have a covenant lawsuit with you because of your complacency towards me. Be like Jacob. Cling to me. Don't let hold of me. Don't lose what you've gained, um, and I will be your God. Remember who I am and hold fast. With Israel, he has a very different message. But it is an important message because it's the message all of us needs to hear. Because all of us, before Christ, B.C., um, rejected God. We're enemies of him. And so this is the message. So there's a lot to cover today. Um, instead of reading verse by verse, I'm not going to make you all stand and read this because it's a lot. Um, I'm going to be pairing uh, different warnings and judgments of Israel with the follow-up thought in Roman, in, excuse me, in Hosea 14. So it's going to go bad news, bad news, but God. Bad news, bad news, but God. Amen? Hallelujah. So we're going to start in uh, Hosea. I keep saying Romans. I guess I should preach on Romans. <laughs> Hosea 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 2. Um, excuse me, in uh, verse 14 of Romans chapter 12. Hosea. If I say Romans, I mean Hosea unless I mean Romans, okay? <laughs> so we have this but. Verse 14 of Hosea says, But Ephraim bitterly provoked him to anger. So he will hold him accountable for the blood he has shed. The Lord will repay him for his contempt that he has shown. Now, as I discussed, oh, sorry, as I discussed in the last sermon, the tone of God's rebuke to Ephraim couldn't be more different than his rebuke of Judah. The main difference is this. Judah continued to worship the Lord, although it was more out of comfort and complacency than conviction. Ephraim, however, had long abandoned Yahweh for idol worship and slavery to their enemies. Both of these are offenses to the Lord of Lords, amen? Their protector and provider. But of the two, Ephraim's sin demands a harsher course correction. And this is a word of warning to all of us. Uh, we need to change courses when we become complacent towards God. But that course correction, as you continue 
towards idolatry, it gets a little more extreme and a little more extreme until pretty soon you have to backtrack a long ways. And that's where uh, the northern kingdom finds themselves. Now, an important note, that word bitterly, they've given a bitter provocation. It's in the absolute form. So really, Hosea's oracle is suggesting that Ephraim's transgression is the most bitter provocation of God's anger. Now, does this mean the most bitter between the two nations at the time? Perhaps. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God. Regardless of this is an all-time most bitter or between the two, their idolatry and corruption would result in them being held under blood guilt and repaid for the contempt of the Lord in like kind. What were we just singing about? What were those songs all saying? Lord, thank you for your blood. It has washed me white as snow. What else? Aren't they all about the blood of Jesus? In the blood, we have hope. In his act on the cross, we have hope. For them here and now, God is saying, I'm going to hold that blood guilt over you. You do not have a, you can't sing, thank you, Lord, for the blood, because the blood's going to be yours. Um, if we look at uh, Leviticus 17, 11, it says, for the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Um, that's how it's always worked. Blood is required for blood. Like it or not, the state of each and every soul who stands in rebellion to God is the same. For them lies no redemption of blood guilt by the blood of Christ, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. And that should be heartbreaking to us. But before we get ahead of ourselves, because we're going to go there, let's look at some of the summary specifics of their bitter provocation. Hosea 14.1 Return, oh wait, a plea to repent. Oh yes. Hosea 14.1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have been your downfall. This is the first of the good news. The call to repentance rings clear and pure. Your sins have destroyed you. Abide no longer in them, but return to God. The ultimatum is clear and uncomfortable. Repent, or be destroyed. This call is great news to the remnant that hid themselves in God's mercy. It is terrible news for everyone who cries, my will be done. Now note the ownership of their destruction in this verse. While it comes at the hand of God, its cause and its blame lie squarely on the perpetrator. Like a court sentencing, and there's been a few of these lately, Uh, The judge hands down a sentence, but you could no more blame the judge than anyone else for the consequences of the crime. (sighs) It's our fault. But before any of us Gentiles breathe a sigh of relief and say, man, I'm glad I'm not Israel. Remember that the age of Christ has opened the means of grace and the necessity of repentance to all mankind. Acts 17.30 says, therefore, Although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
From the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, he preached a gospel of repentance. His mission was a plea to all people everywhere that the kingdom of God has come and that none outside of that kingdom would receive God's mercy. But everyone is graciously invited in. Um, a quote from John Piper, the gospel, the good news, is that the rule of God has arrived in Jesus to save sinners before uh, it arrives in his second coming and judgment. That's good news. Have you thought about that? The rule of God has arrived before his second coming and judgment. So the demand to repent is based on this gracious offer that, that is present to forgive on the gracious warning that someday those who refuse to, that, excuse me, those who refuse the offer will perish in God's judgment. This is the demand of Jesus on every soul. Repent, be changed deep within. In other words, be born again. Now you might ask, as Nicodemus asked, how can I make myself born again? The answer is, you can't. Sorry, there's no amount of willpower or effort to get you there. But there is something that can. Let's go to 13, 4, and 6. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you must acknowledge, you must not acknowledge any God but me. Except me, there is no Savior. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the dry desert where no water was. When they were fed, they became satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. And as a result, they forgot me. Yahweh as always, reminds his children who he is. How often have you opened the Bible without any expectation of anything profound, only to be shocked and delighted as you're reminded of his faithfulness? Has it happened to anyone? I can admit that sometimes when I open the Bible, it's out of a pattern more than it is out of looking for a reminder of God's faithfulness. And yet he's so faithful to say, see, Look, look what I did. Remember what I did in you? Remember what I did there? Hallelujah. What does that experience create in us? For me, I'm often taken aback at how short-sighted I can become. I so easily forget the true weight of God's grace in yesterday's me. Thank you, Lord, for maintaining a hunger within me a lack of satisfaction that spurns me on to experience more of you. Father, do not let us become hardened by your gracious provisions. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. Hosea 13, 7 through 8. So I will pounce on them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. I will attack them as a bear robbed of her cubs. I will rip open their chests. I will devour them like a lion like a wild animal would tear them apart. I will destroy you, O Israel. Who is there to help you? You have to appreciate Hosea's colorful language. Uh, most other prophets would say something like, there'll be a tide of destruction, but Hosea's like, no, I want to get into the nitty-gritty of how this is going to go down. I'm going to tear you apart with my fangs. Um, what a picture of the Lion of Judah. We were just singing about the Lion of Judah. Have you ever thought of it that way? It just occurred to me while we were singing. 
Because even in sight of the Lord's past favor, they rebelled, he was going to break them into pieces. Now, disobedience out of ignorance is one thing. Disobedience in sight of your God, fully knowing what you're doing is wrong, is another. Uh, those of you who have had small children, I, I have too, uh, that you know the fury that can arise in your heart when your child with eyes locked on yours touches the thing you just told him not to touch. Amen? Thank the Lord for his outpoured temperance. Whew. And this is what Israel's doing with God, although on a much grander scale. Locked eyes with God via the prophets and the law, they put their hand where it is forbidden. The severity of their disobedience is so bad in God's eyes that it could only be paid for in blood. Now, we might comfort ourselves with believing that we're not so bad as these rebellious Israelites. Indeed, when we read Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, we might come to uh, an interesting conclusion that bad things sometimes just happen to decent people. Um, perhaps this Hosea fellow is just being a little dramatic. He tends to be dramatic. Amen? In Luke chapter 13, twice, Jesus tells us something. Uh, he overhears a conversation, two different conversations, actually. The first is about these Galileans who are put to death by Pilate, and their blood is mingled with the sacrifice to the Roman bulls. Um, and the second is the Tower of Siloam that fell, killing all these men. And in both cases, the people are saying, man, they must have been terrible for God to do that to them. And it's interesting what Jesus says, because he doesn't say they weren't bad. It was just an accident. He says twice the exact same thing. He says, no, but unless you repent, you will also receive the same fate or you will perish the same way. So Jesus' message isn't, no, they weren't bad. It just happened. His message was, yeah, everyone deserves it. Everyone deserves to have a tower on their head because of their rebellion. And I'm warning you to repent lest you face the same fate. Is that uncomfortable? How could Jesus say that? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We're tempted to think that he's saying uh, that these events have nothing to do with their blood guilt. That is, bad things happen to good people, but that's just not what he's saying. Hosea 13, 10 through 11. Where then is your king that he may save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers for whom you've asked, saying, Give me a king and princes. I granted you a king in my anger. I will take him away in my wrath. In Luke 13, Jesus, oh, that's doubled up. I'm having a glitch. Excuse me. Ah, uh, the defense comes. Found my spot. <laughs> Israel says, but we have an advocate, a protector from God's justice. We have a king. We have a government. We have power. We have a military. In other words, he's saying, mommy. The toddler cries as the father comes to deliver 
punishment. They thought they could avoid the consequences of their idolatry by reliance on earthly power and might. But their father would take even that away. They would be left with nothing, not even a leader to blame for their godlessness. And yet, the father's appeal to repentance and restoration comes. You're about ready for a breath? Here we come. Hosea 14, 2 through 3. Return to the Lord and repent. Say to him, completely forgive our iniquity. Accept our penitential prayer that we may offer the praise of our lips as sacrificial bowls. Assyria cannot save us. We will not ride war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For only you will show compassion to orphan Israel. In spite of the judgment that they deserve, he pleads with them to repent. He cries out with, to them to turn away from their sin and turn towards Jesus. The same call is made to each and every one of us. The good news is that God has made a way for all men to be reconciled with him. Though most refuse to take it, many have and are and will take hold of the hope in Jesus our Savior. Hallelujah. Ezekiel 33, 14 and 16 says, Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, none of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Hallelujah. That's why we're here today. Hallelujah. Moving on to the cup of wrath. Okay, we had a deep breath. We ready to go again? Okay, Hosea 13, 12 through 13. The punishment of Ephraim has been decreed. His punishment is uh, being stored up for the future. The labor pains of a woman will overtake him, but the baby will lack wisdom. When the time arrives, he will not come out of the womb. So as we discussed in chapter 11, God's mercy has resulted in the storing up of his wrath and judgment. And what this is saying is when the time comes, he's not going to want to face it. He's going to want to avoid it, but it's not going to be avoidable. Um, and this storing up can be pictured often in the scripture as a cup of wrath. And there's many references to this, but Isaiah 51, 17 is a good one. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk the dregs of the bowl, to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Indeed, in each of our lives, we are free to live as we choose. However, the dire consequences of our hearts await us in death. It is then that that cup of wrath, filled to the brim, will be drunk. For each person in this world, it will either be wrath leading to eternal damnation and separation from God's love, or it will be drunk by someone else. It will be drunk by Christ on our behalf. The only difference is in whom we have our faith in. Do you dedicate your life in trust to Christ? If so, do you know that he has already drank your cup? In Mark 14, 36, he says, Abba, Father, this is in the garden when we're sweating blood that we just sang about. 
all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Christ drank our wrath through the dregs on the cross. Hallelujah. Verse 14. Will I deliver them from the power of Sheol? No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. O death, bring on your plagues. O Sheol, bring on your destruction. My eyes will not show compassion. That's a heavy, heavy verse. Often the apostles of the new covenant, and even Jesus himself, will quote a verse, but it'll, they'll give it new context and new meaning. And so perhaps this passage kind of rings a bell. Does it ring a bell for anyone? Yeah, a little bit. Although the way you're remembering it, I guarantee you, has a very different tone than this. Here God is declaring his unwillingness to take the cup of wrath from his unfaithful wife. The sting of death is sin, and he will not remove the stinger from a person hell-bent on pushing further into the thorns of unrighteousness. However, to those who put their trust in Christ for victory over death, the meaning of this passage is completely flipped. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We went from, no, I will not, Hold back the power of Sheol to I have victory in Christ. And so by taking hold of the promise by faith, Jew and Gentile alike are made a new creation. Hallelujah. Okay, here comes the big breath. 14 verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger will turn away from them. What can we say but, wow. I mean, does this amaze you? It should. Stop with me for a moment and consider the grace offered freely to us here. God did not just give us a new set of thou shouts to pay back our sin debt. He didn't say, try harder. He didn't say, oh, he didn't say a lot of things. What he did say is, come to me, all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Hallelujah. And fulfilling Isaiah 51, 21 through 22, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken away the, uh, from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And this final section of God's statement to Israel 
turns from the bowl of wrath to the metaphor of a broken and barren land that will um, that they will become in judgment and the flourishing paradise that they can become in repentance and restoration. Uh, starting with verse 15 of chapter 13. Even though he flourishes like a reed plant, a scorching east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. As a result, his springs will dry up and his well become dry. That wind will spoil all his delightful food in the containers of his storehouse. Samaria will be held guilty because she rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to the ground and their pregnant women ripped open. Again, with the Hosea's colorful language. We often forget that the kindness of God's blessings in our lives is meant to draw us to repentance. If, however, we presume upon that kindness, um, he will rob us of its joy and dash our clever little plans to pieces. Have you been blessed with success in this world? Have you been blessed with a spouse and beautiful children? Have you been blessed with financial stability? Have you been blessed with beautiful friendships? How much of God's goodness has he rained down on your life? These things in your life are a call to turn away from iniquity and turn towards God. Amen? If, however, we seek these things for their own sakes, we become futile in our thinking and exchange the glory of God for immaterial treasure. So be warned. We must consider in our hearts where these blessings stand in relation to the giver, Jesus. Regard the giver and cherish him above all gifts, for he is willing and able to remove those things if it means that he can restore you to a right relationship with him. Back to chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. I will be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. He will send down its roots like a cedar of Lebanon. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. People will reside again in his shade. They will plant and harvest grain in abundance. They will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. What a contrast. He says before, you are like a, a reed, but a scorching east wind is going to come, and it's going to destroy everything. It's going to be a wildfire, and not even the wells will remain. And yet, by returning to the Lord, they will become famous. They will blossom. <laughs> Their fragrance will be beautiful. I mean, do you guys see this? This is an incredible contrast. And this is the contrast that's offered to us. If you pursue your own things, you'll dry up. If you pursue your own understanding, if you pursue your own sins, if you lay hold of your own strength to support you, those things are going to die and end. But if you come to me, I will do things with you that you couldn't even imagine. Amen? 
The conclusion is verse 9. Who is wise? Let him discern these things. Who is discerning? Let him understand him. For the ways of the Lord are right. The godly walk in them. But in them the rebellious stumble. See what I did there? The gospel of repentance is a touchy subject. And I think many well-meaning Christians don't think we ought to preach repentance because, well, for there's a lot of reasons. Um, some say it's not necessary. Some say we could come up here and I can preach Jesus loves you. And you can find your fullness in him and I don't have to ever mention anything regarding repentance. And that is sufficient. Um, others say, well, it adds works to the gospel and we can't have that. Um, and then others say, well, the Holy Spirit will do it. The Holy Spirit will, will convict you to repent. I don't have to mention it. Just let God do that. Uh, and the, the fourth is, uh, it's a stumbling block. If you preach repentance, people are not going to show up at church. Right? Like, we all have this idea, the guy who preaches repentance is the guy with, like, leaves in his beard on the corner, screaming at people. Like, well, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Well, let me address a few of those things. First, it's not necessary. It absolutely is necessary. I think Jesus alone, if we ignored the rest of the Bible, makes this abundantly clear. From the beginning of his earthly ministry to the very end, he preached it as foundational to being born again. In the beginning of his ministry, in Matthew 4.17, it says, before he's even gotten any disciples, from that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the very end of his ministry, with his commission to the disciples after his resurrection, he tells them uh, to go and preach, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Notice that, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And guess what? They did it. Do you know how they, we know they did it? Because we're here today. Because they went out and they didn't just preach, Jesus loves you. They said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn while it's still time. Uh, the second objection, repentance is a work. And as we've been studying in Galatians, works can't save you. There's no such thing as faith and, right? Right. But the problem is repentance isn't a work. It's the other side of faith. Okay, repentance doesn't mean stop doing that thing. It means reorient yourself to God. Turn around and face him. Okay, we know this from, from a lot, and I'm going to just give you a couple verses. Enjoy, one of these isn't in your slides, I apologize. Uh, John the Baptist says, therefore, produce fruit worthy of repentance, or as another translation puts it, produce fruit that proves your repentance. So repentance and the, the works, the fruits, they're not the same thing. The obedience, that comes with it, but it doesn't equal it. Amen? A couple other things that we can look at is um, Hebrews 6, 1. 
Uh, therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instruction about Christ and move on to maturity, not laying this foundation again, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Uh, what he's saying there isn't necessarily germane to what we're talking about, but I want you to notice he says, not laying again this foundation. Okay, it's foundational. And what is foundational? Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Um, actually, I prefer how the ESV puts it here. It says, repentance away from dead works and faith towards God. Okay, they happen together. And in Acts 20, 21, it says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith are the same thing. You can't have one without the other. Now, you'd think, well, repentance has to have works involved. Yeah, it does, just like faith does. Amen? We talk about being saved by faith, but you can't just have faith and nothing else happen in your life. Okay, when you repent, when you reorient your heart towards God and cling to him like Jacob, well then, brothers and sisters, things are going to change in your life. Amen? There are things that you are no longer going to do that you once did. But that isn't what repentance is. Repentance is here, not here. Okay, the third is the Holy Spirit will convict the world. Yes, he will. Through us. Amen? In other words, we're not excused from preaching the truth because it's hard for people to hear. We preach the truth in faith, knowing that the Holy Spirit will use us. And he uses us and you and your word, and well, excuse me, his word, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. A couple verses here in Romans. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hallelujah. Faith comes through the word of Christ. How are they then to call on the one they've not believed? And how are they to believe in the one they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? So yeah, the Holy Spirit will convict. But that's not our job. Our job is to preach faith and repentance. And the last is the last issue people have is that it's a stumbling block. And I have to say, it is a huge stumbling block. I think the gospel of repentance and grace is the most offensive thing to a righteous person. But it is a necessary stumbling block. Amen? In this passage, it says the rebellious will stumble on the ground of God's way, but the repentant sinner finds only the smooth path to glory. Hallelujah. Um, Romans 9, 31 and 32 says, But Israel, even though pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were possible by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. We preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Okay, so I think I've made my case that repentance is important. What next? What next? Is this the end of what Hosea is trying to tell us? Yes and no. Um, 
the main thrust of Hosea's message is to repent and return. Amen? To turn away from your idolatry, to turn away from, as he calls it, your whoring, and to come home to God. It's the prodigal son writ large to Israel. And many of them didn't listen. Most of them didn't listen, but some did. Some remained faithful. And the same call goes out to us. Amen? Now, that whole repentance thing, out of curiosity, how often do you think you have to do that? Well, I can guarantee you this. If it was once and done, then none of us here are going to make it. Amen? No. It's, it's an everyday of our life thing. It's the, it's the working out of that old man dying and becoming a new creation. And so, brothers and sisters, you might have something right now that you need to repent of. An attitude uh, or unforgiveness or a sin or just loving something more than God. Come now. Repent of it. You might need to repent of it again tomorrow. Repent of it. Keep repenting of it. Hallelujah. <sighs> Why? Why should we repent? Because of the promise all the way back in Hosea chapter 2. When they turn back, God tells us this. And I want you to close your eyes and imagine you as being the receiver of this from God. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Hallelujah. Father, here and now, Lord, we lay up our hearts to you. There are things that have been holding us back and binding us up and stumbling us. There are things in our lives, God, that we want to let go so desperately, and we are unable to give birth to ourselves again. Father, help us to even repent of trying, but turn to you and lay ourselves down at your feet and allow you to do the work in our lives. Father, I know some here don't know you, and I know many brothers and sisters who do. All of us, though, Lord, Receive the same invitation. God, thank you for the grace to offer a way while there was still hope. Lord, thank you for withholding your judgment upon us and taking it upon yourself instead. Help us not to just strive to live worthy lives of that calling, God, but to fall in rapturous love with you pouring out all the things in our lives and letting you pick through them and wash them clean. God, thank you for your message to Israel. It mourns us to know that so many didn't repent, and it mourns us to know there's so many around us who refuse. God, give us your love for them. 
Help us to dedicate our lives to drawing them to you, to glorifying you in every space we come to. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your mighty name because of the blood you shed on our behalf so that we are no longer under a blood guilt. And that is why we pray and how we can pray. In Jesus' name, amen.